Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation theology and history. Today, we are joined by Dr. Susan Bray to discuss the life and person of C.S. Lewis and explore some aspects of him that don't always get a lot of attention, but to which Dr. Bray has done work on. Uh, Dr. Bray is professor of British literature and civilization at Lille. Cat, did I pronounce it right? I know we talked about it in the, the Lille. Sorry, is that right? Lille Catholic University. Yeah, okay, Lille Catholic University in the north of France. And um, she principally works on the history of ideas in 20th century Britain and the interaction between religion and pop popular culture. That was the topic of her doctoral studies at uh, University of Lille down the road from Lille Catholic University, um, where, where she focused on the communication of faith in literature in Britain, uh, really in the 20th century, and um, which led her to her study in C.S. Lewis. Uh, she's written extensively, both in English and French, on C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, Charles Williams, and other uh, modern Anglican authors. So thank you for coming on our show, Dr. Bray. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, Thanks and Jane. Oh, I'm sorry. Thanks for inviting me. So. Yeah, we're we're delighted and honored to uh, we we've you know we, C.S. Lewis has been mentioned here and there on the podcast, but to bring someone who's 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 done a lot of work on him and whose expertise is him is is just great. Um, and of course, a reminder for our listeners: we encourage you, you know, however you listen or stream us, to go ahead and give Doth Protest uh, a rating and review. We appreciate all the feedback. That in turn will greatly promote our podcast out to more people through the algorithms, which I'm not quite sure how all that works, but the computer people assure me of that. So, so Dr. Bray, uh, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, James here, uh, he's also a, a pretty big fan of C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm definitely excited uh, that he's joining us as well, uh, because um, he, uh, he, and so he may have to come in and pick up at times just because I myself, I've, um, I've been exposed to C.S. Lewis since an early age, um, primarily through the Narnia books. Uh, I remember my when I was growing up, my mom would uh, I remember Magician's Nephew was one of the books that my mom read to me and my sister when we were little. Um, and so uh, but I was and also when I was very young, I remember watching the the uh, there was a 1970s like animated and I think it was BBC version of Lion, the Wist in the Wardrobe and um, the 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 voice of the white queen. Or the white witch what was the the white witch yeah. the white witch the vo her um voice and that was just like nails on a chalkboard if i i i'll put it youtube it's on youtube i'll put a link in our show notes for people to watch but i otherwise loved watching that i watched that so much as a kid but so i've gotten into lewis here and there and i respect and acknowledge how significant he is but you know for for all the interests i have i i would think that i would be much more into lewis than i am maybe that's the exciting part i you know there's always you know time there's always more interest to explore so but i wanted to ask you uh knowing that of course you studied him in your doctoral studies but but before that was there interest in him um you know when did you first come across him how did this interest develop well, I first read the uh, Chronicles of Narnia when I was a child, so uh, I was exposed early. It must have been about nine, I think, when we did The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in my uh, primary school. Um, I first read his books for adults, as it were, 
from the age of 17, one of my mother's friends gave me a copy of Surprised by Joy, uh, Lewis's autobiography. Okay. And um, that basically led me on to all the rest. Um, and I, I think I'd already seen an adaptation of Screwtape Letters by then as well. Um, but um, so by the time I'd finished um my undergraduate studies I'd probably read the lot and the lot is a lot there's <laughs> yeah. a, a phenomenal number of books and articles right. so uh yeah <laughs> it is it more than as I did some research for this episode I realized that the list of his work is, is pretty extensive I actually just bought his bits I, I meant to kind of show it on the screen not that it matters because it's an audio only uh, podcast but I, I just bought the fern seed and elephants i think mm -hmm. i've never read that and it seems to be more scholarly a collection of scholarly articles by him and um i'm really excited because he's got stuff in there on like hegel and stuff and i'm like well I'm, i, I want to see what this is all about so i'm excited to read that but um james i know you and i have talked a little bit about c.s lewis in here um kind of kind of briefly tell us like what how long is this in you have you had this interest so I was actually first introduced to C.S. Lewis, not through Narnia, but through mere Christianity. Um, when I was in high school, high school was a time, at least when I was in high school, where um, there were a lot of kids who were questioning their faith, including my brother. And that often being the child of an Episcopal priest, that often would be directed at me. Um, I would be the uh, the repository for their for their anxiety or their frustration about God, um, including my brother. And so I got very interested in apologetics. And when I was in high school, um, someone gave me um, a copy of Mere Christianity and I poured over it. And as as much as I could understand those concepts of things like moral law and natural law and and things like that it was a balm for my soul because it answered some of the questions that were arising in my own heart. After I read Mere Christianity, I read rather a lot of his books. Um, I, I read the Narnia books. I read um, the Screwtape Letters, which is perhaps my favorite of, of Lewis's works because that at a time where I was deeply entrenched in my own questions and doubt, that was a balm in and of itself. Um, a Grief Observed, The Great Divorce. All of these are really important works that Lewis produced that have been incredibly helpful in the life of the church, not just the Anglican church, but, but the church in general. Um, frankly, I know more non-Anglicans who have read Lewis than Anglicans. <laughs> yeah, this um, seems to be the case, uh, especially like in the States. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Uh, so I will fully admit, I'm a bit ashamed, I've never read Mere Christianity. Um, it, it's as much as I've I've gotten into apologetics uh, in my life, I've never actually read, and that's supposed to be kind of the granddaddy of them all, right? At least in the modern, where in the modern, you know, post-supernaturalist outlook of, of life. I mean, obviously we can go back to Anselm and that, and even way back to Justin Martyr, but but C.S. Lewis is really, uh, maybe it could be mistaken, but kind of the, the one who, who, who so many of apologists 
of today kind of go back to. So um, though I've not actually read it, that um, I will, I intend to one day. Um, this may be a good segue into a larger discussion of him and his life, uh, because his life involved a deep conversion, right? And it wasn't, it wasn't an overnight one, but a gradual one that involved a lot of reflection, intellect, uh, contemplation. Uh, it really was a thinking man's conversion, so to speak. But um, but speaking of this conversion, you know, J.R. Tolkien, as most people who have some knowledge of C.S. Lewis, you know, they know that they were friends, which is very interesting because they're that their paths cross because they're both hugely celebrated authors um, whose work is kind of bigger than them. Uh, and they both have religious dimensions to their work. Uh, so these two were part of a kind of group of people who often interacted with each other called, is it the Inklings? Yes, the Inklings. The Inklings. Well, the Inklings only comes into being after C.S. Lewis's conversion. But uh, okay, yeah. So after his conversion and they had rich discussions, right? So that, you know, they're they all had the they all had the impression that there's there's more to life than just, you know waking yeah, up and they eating. were they were all <laughs> they were all christians the inklings they also all drank beer and all wrote um okay. so i think that uh, sort of largely came to be the three the three main things they had in common and pipe smoking they didn't all smoke pipes but fair enough, fair enough. yeah <laughs> well what were they uh what what was kind of the the did they have a basic gist or purpose of what they did, or what? Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about them. Um, Dr. Well, the Inklings used to bring their work in progress to their gatherings, and they would read extracts from what they were writing to the rest of the group, and the rest of the group would make suggestions how to improve it, tell them exactly what they thought about it. Apparently they were very frank and uh, blunt on the subject. And I think that part of the reason that The Lord of the Rings ever got published and uh, part of the reason that a lot of Lewis's uh, and Charles uh, Williams later's books got published as well is that they read them out and got um, some very, very good critics to uh, tell them how to improve it as they were going along. Um, and, and as I said, in the case of The Lord of the Rings, I don't think it would have got published at all without the Inklings. Wow. So, uh... <laughs> Tolkien did everything he possibly could to not get it published because of how mm. how uh, harsh he was with the publishers, wanting to get the Silmarillion published at the same time and whatnot. Mm. Yeah, James just did a, cl a class on uh, a week-long uh, intensive course on Tolkien, uh, by, uh, under who was it? Dr. Joel Scandrett at Trinity School for Ministry here in the States in Pennsylvania. He's yeah. a he's a, a Tolkien devotee. Um, and me being a Lewis devotee, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the class because Tolkien, who hated with a passion, hated allegory, absolutely despised the Narnia books because of their overt allegory. And frankly, um, I, I think they're a very compelling series because of their allegorical nature. But that's a that's a different topic, I suppose. And also, Tolkien can't say a lot about allegory with Leaf by Niggle, which I know. is as allegorical as you can get. So, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> and I just find it hard to believe. Uh, I know people say this isn't true, but I don't know. The the 
tokens trench war experience mm-hmm. and kind of the warfare the battles of lord of the Rings. i i can't help but like come on even if it was at a very subconscious level i mean it has to have had some influence on, on the way he writes but i don't know right influence but not yeah but both lewis and tolkien had the first world war in common and fighting in the trenches and they both hated it but then you'd expect them to it wasn't fun (laughs) and they both attempted as far as possible not to mention it again right Um, Mm -hmm. once it was over they didn't want to think about it yeah you see that where they weren't the only ones so although it obviously it must have influenced their writing in some ways, it was definitely not something either of them wanted to consciously bring into their writing. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that is a very good point. I mean, the the and the way, you know, obviously that op- could open up a whole wider discussion on, you know, what is now called post-traumatic stress disorder. They didn't have a good understanding quite of what it was in earlier times. And there wasn't there, people kind of uh, left to kind of their own devices on how to deal with that. And um, yeah, it's, but yeah, um, I can, but I still, I can't help but think that, that, that experience had, you know, just had something to do. It, it comes out in their work. I think um, just to have that um, just to, to live with in the face of death. Um, That's why, yeah. You know. That's why Lewis was asked to write the problem of pain. Mm-hmm. Um, because the uh, publisher knew that he'd been through the First World War and been injured and all the rest of it, and so thought that he would have a certain credibility if he oh. talked on that subject. Um, so that's why he was invited. And that's one of those things that I find most impressive about Lewis is that his writing was so topical for the day um mm-hmm. he was doing theodicy before it was cool in effect um yeah. and and he he addressed um issues with his apologetic works like the problem of pain but also mere christianity that other people weren't willing to touch because at the time society still at least perhaps had a biblical undergirding People still had a kind of biblical worldview, even if it was slightly more secular, which is why I think Lewis's writings have have started to have a resurgence because all of his apologetic works are being reread now in light of a society that has sort of lost its biblical undergirding. Hmm. And, and he's sort of helping to reinvigorate that even after death. And in fact, would you say that's an accurate statement, Dr. Bray, or would you disagree? I think I would say that Lewis did it so much better than anybody else. Yeah, that's true. Um, he wrote better mainly, um, but his ideas aren't terrifically different from those of the other apologists of his own generation. If you read what Dorothy Sayers wrote, but even if you read what Archbishop William Temple wrote, you read, um, you know, uh, V. Demant, you read uh, J.S. Whale, they're all saying much the same thing. The ideas are not different, but Lewis just writes better than the, well, he doesn't necessarily write better than Sayers, but he write, wrote more than Sayers. But right. those two both wrote so much better than the others did. Sorry, yeah. 
the cat is making funny noises here. But That's all right. You're okay. Like I told her, listen, the pre-show conversation, we're real people in real places with real things. And my dog may bark if someone walks across the street or if they see someone walking. So, <laughs> uh, so, so at this point, I think we could get into some aspects of Lewis that are um, not as widely explored, but nevertheless, I think are very interesting to dive into. Uh, Dr. Bray, you the first article I ever came across from you was an article called C.S. Lewis and Politics. I may have misremembered that, but it was for the Anglo-American Review. Yes, it was for seven. Yeah. Um, yes. That was a long time ago, but yeah. <laughs> well, I just had a couple, you know, kind of basic questions. I'm going to put uh, the show note to this article in the uh, in the show notes for uh, no uh, citation of it in our show notes for people to check out. You can read it on academia.edu. Um, see, so I'm very interested in political science, political history. Uh, I've always kind of have been. I know that doesn't always come off for our listeners on our podcast. Maybe it's a surprise, but and maybe that's a good thing. I don't talk about politics on here, but but Lewis is a pretty significant voice in his day, and he was the the mid century equivalent, maybe you could say, of like an online influencer would be today. And you know, he wrote many books that were bestsellers. He spoke on the radio for years, and so many people would tune in. He, he was a big deal in his own time, and yeah. more than most of the theologians we talk about on this podcast. And he's a pop, he was a popular author. So someone like him, you know, who a lot of people look to, people in these positions have the benefit of everyone's ear. And they see, as we see today with influencers and celebrities, we see that these figures do or will weigh in on politics. And when that happens, a lot of people, you know, whether it's for better or for worse, when that happens, a lot of people pay attention. Um, you mentioned in the article, like during the 2000s, I guess we call it the aughts now, there was sort of an explosion of commentary journalism that tried to speak to contemporary events of that time. So like, the war in Iraq, the war on terror, 9-11, um, with, with articles suggesting how C.S. Lewis would respond to these. Um, you know, whenever people do this, it's perhaps anachronistic or, you know, putting the thoughts and words into the minds and mouths of the de deceased. But um, but you noted in your article that people that took on this kind of new interest in Lewis, at least for the sake of, you know, appealing to him in the current situation, that they didn't really appreciate Lewis's complex views that he had on politics, you know, and Lewis was complex. I mean, everything I read on him, he's never flippant in his treatment of any topic, really. So what what made um, what made his political views uh, complex, I guess? Why why um, why is he hard to kind of fit into one political camp? And I think the main reason is he's from Northern Ireland. Um, as a Northern Irishman who grew up with religion and politics completely mixed up, as the situation in Northern Ireland is, um, he felt it was very important not to mix them up. He'd had bad experiences of politics and religion being mixed up, and it had partly delayed him coming to a full understanding of the Christian faith. And so he was very, very careful not to tell people how to vote, um, very, very careful not to take sides in party political issues. Um, on the other hand, on specific 
political questions, he did have an opinion. But um, he often tried to make sure that it didn't, for example, come across in his radio broadcasts. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that the fact that he was marked by his Northern Irish upbringing made his approach perhaps far more careful on politics than someone who'd been brought up in England would be. Um, far more far more careful not to offend anybody or to put them off the gospel. Be he didn't want people to be put off the gospel because of his um, political views. Um, and I think that is is a very important point. It is. And it's so like, it's, it's still the ongoing struggle because there is a certain tightrope, I think, in a sense that not just ministers, but because C.S. Lewis wasn't an ordained minister, but just Christians have to, to walk because it's like, uh, the, the politics and religion are not the same thing. Nevertheless, we Christians live in common life together, um, and so it 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 ultimately we 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 are to to participate in that, right? And um, give voice to things, and so it's just yeah, it's it's just a tightrope that I mean, but you also see the in, when you see it, like you said, the alienation of the, the way people can be alienated by such the the mix or, or baptizing political ideology it's um you know i can see why c.s lewis um would try to prevent that in anything in and how he came off uh you know it's and then there's also the other side the other the criticism was like if you don't speak to anything then you're a quietist or something and so it's just like you can you're never it's like you're, <laughs> you're damned if you do damned if you don't type thing yeah. and uh but he also felt it was very important that people who did Christians who did talk about politics knew what they were talking about. Mm. Um, it, there's a famous statement of his that all that you all that you learn from most political sermons is which newspapers are taken at the rectory. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I think that's that was a point. He had had bad experience of basically um, clergy spouting what the what they read in the press without necessarily understanding all the issues and as lewis knew that politics was complex he didn't feel that people who didn't really understand the issues ought to hold forth on the subject <laughs> um yeah well uh, they're kind of circling back yeah yeah <laughs> circling back to me I mean, you he's from northern ireland and it's like uh just again i've never been there my impression i watched the movies about the 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 you know in in fighting and with the Irish it's just like there there is a uh, so little distinction between between faith and one's political interests so yeah it's I can see you know um, why that left a uh, you know bad impression on Lewis and perhaps shaped him in his future mm -hmm. when he did speak out on political things um, so uh, and it's so. You know, when I when I read your work on Lewis and politics, um, you know, I remember years ago I was reading The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, and, and I've I've not read all the Narnia books. Honestly, I, I've read uh, three of them, I think. But I remember reading Last Battle about five or six years ago, and um, this, I mean, you didn't bring that writing up, at least I don't think, and I usually don't see it brought up um, by 
I, I really don't see that 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 work really brought up as far as like C.S. Lewis's world outlook and things. But when I was reading it, there's the ape figure in that book. And I, I think it's very allegorical that um, this ape, which is the antagonist, I guess, the the main villain of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's it's very clear that it's an allegory for like the beast or antichrist from like, you know, apocalyptic biblical mm -hmm. literature in the book of Revelation. Uh, but not only is there that that Christian undertone, to me, at least the ape came off to me as like an allegory for like the sort of that sort of mid 20th century uh, totalitarian tyrant figure that was alive in everyone's mind at the time. Of course, this isn't, of course, just limited to Adolf Hitler, but I think of Stalin, especially at the time, I guess. Maybe say Mao, even though maybe Mao came a little bit after that. I forget when Last Battle was written, but you know the 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 communist regimes um, that we of the West lived in opposition to and fear to, and I could not help but get a very like Orwellian type of vibe when I was reading Lewis's Last Battle because he talks about this so much about this deceptive utopian uh, like figure that's misleading all these people. And, and like I could not help but see many parallels, I think, in Orwell and Lewis as as people who are seeing the dark soulless side of a humanity that promises progress and utopia. But but it's funny because you point out you point out how Orwell was a critic of Lewis, how Orwell yeah. was, of course, being of the left, but became disenchanted with so much of the left for, for those of us who know Orwell's story. Uh, and that's, you know, what went behind Animal Farm in 1984. How did Orwell and these leftist circles, what was their criticism of Lewis? And do you think it was warranted? I think it was just that they find anything that is explicitly Christian extremely embarrassing. Um, I, I, I think that's really Orwell's main argument against Lewis um, is that he's too Christian. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't, in some things, they are very similar. I find huge resemblances, for example, between 1984 and That Hideous Strength, the mm. uh, third one of the uh, Lewis's cosmic trilogy, his uh, science fiction fantasy novels for adults. There, and there are huge resemblances between the, the two books. I, so they do have quite a few ideas in common. And they're both very strong on the way that dictators and totalitarian regimes deform language. Um, that's a subject they both uh, were in full agreement on. Um, but uh, no, I, th I think that when Orwell did criticize Lewis, it was because he considered Lewis was um, too Christian. But also I think he would thought Lewis didn't, didn't use his celebrity to criticize the government when he could have done. Right. Um, and Lewis sort of deliberately didn't, even if he thought it. Um, he, he and that was even I think I did mention in the article he refused to be receive an honor from the government the CBE because he didn't want to be associated with the government wow uh, he didn't want everyone to think that he approved of the conservative government by accepting an honor from them right. I think if he'd been on the queen's oh no it was the king's at the time if he'd been on the king's honors list he would probably have accepted it but as it was the prime minister's honours list that he was being nominated on, I don't think he want he didn't want it. 
Well, it takes a person of principle to, I mean, <laughs> to turn that down. He refused it. He, he turned it down. And I think that's why. Um, because he didn't want to be associated with a political party. He didn't mm -hmm. want to be associated with what in Britain we call the establishment, right. uh, the authorities, the people in charge. And Lewis felt that as a, if he wanted to have in some ways a prophetic voice, he needed not to be associated with right. the government. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, that that I I think and Dorothy Sayers took a similar position. Um, she turned down. Okay. Well, although she was possibly also afraid that if she got it, that people would look too closely into her private life. But um, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it was the same thing though. They they both turned down the honors they were offered. So um, you know, Lou, it's. Lewis was good. I mean, like you just said, I didn't, I didn't um, realize that, that he had turned down that honor. Um, so he was always cautious in his political involvement, but um, you mentioned how he, he, and it was hard. And I think you know, it was hard to put him in a camp because you kind of uh, pointed out in your work that he did have a progressive side to him yeah. too. Um you know, he shared some sympathies with socialists, I guess, small s socialism in some regards is, mm -hmm. you know, is he, he saw that capitalisms and aristocracies did create social ills that do need to be overcome. But um, but also on social issues, uh, he, as far as I read from from what you were saying and inciting him, he was uh in favor of same-sex marriage uh i don't think he's been way. in favor of same-sex marriage nobody had mentioned same-sex marriage okay. at that period he was favor of at that point legalization of homosexuality because okay legalization uh, of okay uh, uh, I, my bad i misread that now, the, those are two very different issues but um that yeah and but that would have been very ahead of his time yes and it would have and it made him very unpopular with some people um mm -hmm. but the thing was that um, there was so much blackmailing of homosexuals going on at the time. Um, basically, if anyone had managed to find a photo of you in a homosexual relationship, um, you would lose your job, and you could, and you'd end up in prison. Right. Um, and um, Lewis did not think this was reasonable. He 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 didn't. He he felt that. People, particularly people who were homosexual and wished it, wished they weren't, had a tough enough life without having a prison sentence hanging over them. Mm -hmm. And he also thought that people exploited homosexuals because in uh, because of this that was hanging over them. And um, and in fact, there were cases that uh, uh, there were a couple of cases that were around the same time as when he was speaking on this of people who had been persuaded into spying for the K uh, KGB um, rather than not because they were communists. They weren't at all. They're just the KGB had was threatening to out them as homosexuals. Mm -hmm. And Lewis just thought this was ridiculous. Right. And but as for as for the the practice of homosexuality, Lewis was theologically and morally opposed to it. And he says yeah. so in mere Christianity, yeah. but. He was not. He was okay with the legalization of it, and therefore the decriminalization of yeah. it, for that exact purpose. I, that that's that was my understanding as well. Yes, yeah, that, that's completely right. Yeah, he 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 himself did not think that for a Christian 
um, any form of sexual relationship outside Christian marriage was acceptable. Right. But he didn't think that you should cause problems for those who didn't agree with you on that. Um, he said right. that was something for Christians, and it was to a certain extent between them and God. Um, but it wasn't uh, something that he felt the state ought to uh, interfere in. Right. Well, it's hard. It's hard to imagine a, a time where where uh, where it was criminalized. I mean, it's uh, it, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago, but. Um... And you also have to realize that some of his friends at Oxford were homosexual and were mm -hmm. living in fear all the time. For example, one of the people who led him to Christ, Neville Coghill, uh, was homosexual. Um, mm -hmm. And and Lewis knew that. Obviously, he wouldn't have said so in public, um, but, right. but he was well aware of it. Right. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe... Um interesting to go over maybe into his theological views um because um so so like some some of what you wrote surprised me about his political views um um especially the part about where he of his openness to to the legalization of homosexuality at the time i figured him being a traditionalist at least in our minds as a traditionalist that's something he would have not weighed in on in that way he did but um but the but you know the complaints or the criticisms that some of his contemporaries had of him as uh, a reactionary or traditionalist, I can still see why he would rub off progressives of his day too, because he valued, I think, Western heritage uh, and but especially Christian heritage, um, like you mentioned. I you, you know it, Orwell that was probably Orwell's big you know problem he had with Lewis, but. Uh, you and I, I and I didn't. Um, so I apologize now because I didn't bring, I didn't uh, mention to you, Doctor Bray, that uh, I, I read an ar another article of yours that I and I had a couple questions about, and I, I should have let you know that I, I, I might have asked okay. you a couple questions. If I, was, I should know what's in it. Yeah, yeah it's it's just a, it's a, the C.S. I think it was C.S. Lewis as an Anglican. I think, yeah, oh, which is fascinating. And I, again, for our listeners, I'll put a. I get a lot more feedback on that one. <laughs> It had a lot of reads from what I could tell from uh, academia, edu, um, and um, it's uh, so if it's okay, I, I want to ask a couple questions on that. Um, oh, go ahead, no problem. So we're all Anglican here, and I didn't um, bring. I apologize, I didn't bring that up. You are part. You are a lay minister in the Church of England. Yes, um, uh, diocese of Europe. So yeah, diocese of Europe. Okay, and um, okay, and um, so. That was an important part, I think, because uh, I think it had there's some connection here with our, what we're talking about. But you know, James, me, and you were all Anglican. We we and we and you know, I, I like to claim C.S. Lewis for our own because, like we said, it often gets forgotten in the states, uh, especially in the states um, where a lot of non-Anglicans read them. But there's always that debate of like, what is Anglicanism? And and James and I, of course, for our listeners who listen to our podcast. We, we're of the mind that you know Anglicanism, uh, it's what is distinct to Anglicanism can indeed be found in the fruits of the English Reformation, which are the Book of Common Prayer, Thirty Nine Articles, Book of Homilies. But Lewis is an Anglican at a later time, of course, than the English Reformation, a time much closer to our own, uh, where Anglicanism has taken on different meanings. And you you know you see the development of high versus low church. You see the Anglo Catholic versus Evangelical, etc. But for Lewis, uh, you note how he didn't really get into these 
these camps so much, he, similar to the politics. And he was, and I mean, he on one end, he was flatly against certain Roman Catholic dogmas like transubstantiation, Marian devotion being imported into or perhaps imposed upon Anglicanism. But overall, he didn't really fit into, like he wasn't like an evangelical because of that. Um, but you mentioned, there's a quote you mentioned, it said, Lewis seemed less worried by the presence of excessive Anglo-Catholicism, even more so by the spread of liberalism among the clergy, which he perceived as threatening the church's very existence. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we got it so far that he's a traditionalist in many ways. He isn't a typical conservative in his days on political and social issues, but here he decries liberalism in the church. What is this liberalism that he is concerned about? He's generally um, very concerned about members of the clergy who deny either the resurrection or the miracles. That's mm -hmm. the predominant thing he's worried about. And there were a lot of them around at the time. Um, He's um there still are. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, a lot of people say that it's not a coincidence that Lewis died and John Robinson's Honest to God were um published at the same time. But right. um, I was just thinking about John Robinson, yeah. Yeah. Um, but um so sort of Lewis dies, honest to God, we go into a new era in the mm -hmm. Church of England in any case. But no, Lewis felt that a lot of the what for him were the basic doctrines of Christianity were being watered down to try and make the faith more acceptable. But he right. felt it had the opposite effect, that okay. it doesn't make the faith more acceptable. It just makes the faith wish, faith wishy-washy and of no interest as far as he was concerned. If, if you don't have, for Lewis, if you don't have a real incarnation, a real crucifixion and resurrection, then there's not much point. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that was what he felt very strongly about. He was okay to a certain extent about people being Catholic or evangelical or Pentecostal or whatever, if they that suited them as long as they didn't impose everything on him. Um, but because at, at least they believed in God, they believed in Jesus, <laughs> etc. Right. So, um he had things in common with the evangelicals. He had things in common with the Anglo-Catholics. He had some things in common with middle-of-the-road people, but at liberalism or yeah. rejection, if you didn't believe the, the Apostles' Creed, he didn't think you were Christian. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's, you know, I've... Uh, my struggle with it, too, with, with this the, the liberalism that tries to appease... Uh, modern people and modern seekers by trying to make it more palatable i i feel like the, the turn is always just making it well it's it's all true in a sense because it's a metaphor for something deeper right like um and i get like i get like i get that things like the resurrection it's not just yeah it's not just the resuscitation of a body obviously it has much more meaning than that it has much more meaning for us yeah. um it's a it's bigger than the concrete but it still involves the concrete. I don't understand how we can just completely metaphorize all these things and 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 really be palatable, ironically, you know? <laughs> so. Well, Lewis is one of his big themes was myth um, became fact. 
mm-hmm. in Jesus. The mm-hmm. myths of dying and rising gods and from all the pagan religions become historical um, in the Jesus event. And uh, for him, that that is absolutely important, that it should be both factually, historically correct and mythical at the same time. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Bray, but from reading the biography by Humphrey Carpenter of Tolkien, yeah, one of the things that Carpenter said about Tolkien's conversations with Lewis is exactly what you're saying. And that was what eventually that realization is what eventually pushed him over the edge into the faith mm-hmm. was to, uh, Lewis used to refer to um, uh, oh, he referred to myth as lies breathe through silver. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, eventually what Tolkien was able with some others to help Lewis to see was that myths are true, even if they're not factual, but the myth that is Christianity is true and factual. Yes. yes. And that's what eventually helped him to see by God's grace, by the gift of the Holy spirit to arrive at the conclusion that yes, actually this is the truth with a capital T. Yeah. And I think because it was so important for him, it wasn't negotiable. Um, It was what, what took him into the Christian rather than just theist camp. Right. Um, And I think, and seeing also that it was, he was also very strong on the fact that it was something that wasn't controversial between the churches. That was something that Catholics, Evangelicals, Anglicans, uh, Presbyterians, everybody, Methodists were all happy with. And in theory believed. Right. Um, uh, it was it was it, it was fundamental for him. Yeah. Yeah. This is a fascinating time in in church history when Lewis was was becoming a Christian and writing. And in the US, which I've been doing a fair amount of reading about recently with regard to the Episcopal Church and its development, it mimicked some of the same patterns that were going on in the UK. And um, in the U.S., we had, you know, post-revolution, we had the development of Unitarianism that came out of Anglicanism with um, with the King's Chapel in Boston and um, the move, the shift toward Unitarianism at places like Harvard. Mm. Um, and you have um, obviously rampant deism post-Enlightenment here in the colonies with people like Thomas Jefferson cutting out all the miraculous things from the Bible and leaving only the moral teachings. And that's where I think the liberalism aspect in, in England was, um, was very in line with what we were dealing with here in the U S at the time was that Christianity had been basically reduced to morals Hmm. in England and in, and in the U S and Lewis was fighting against that. He was fighting against this sort of Boltmanian demythologization principle that was so common uh, among um, academia, but not only academia, but also clergy. Um, would you agree yeah. with that? I think that very much what Lewis found was 
worrying was that often the congregation believed a lot more than the clergy. Right. And he felt that the clergy had sort of missed it from that point of view, that the clergy should be examples in faith, right. not just in morals, but in faith to their congregations. And he was finding, you know, so many churches where the congregation believed more than the, the clergy did. Right. I think he felt this was a really big problem. Right. Um, I I have a, for quite a good story on that one because um, it was here in France um, when we ha um, there was a Protestant church with a very liberal uh, minister and um, who had was just denying various uh, miracles. And one elderly lady sat up and uh, stood up to, to him and I, we were actually there. And she said um, to, to him, uh, you know, minister, I'm terribly sorry. Um, we, you might not believe all those things, but we believe them. And what's more, we pay you to believe them. So, and I think Lewis would have been complete. That was completely Lewis's point of view. You know, right, the, yeah. church, the church pays you to believe them almost, and it definitely pays you to teach them. Right. Yeah. I like how you brought up uh, Boltman, James, because I, because I, I, I think, I think though, uh, and this is going to circle back to the point we when we were talking about myth and actuality. Uh, you know, for Boltmann in many ways rejected, I think a lot of the, what Lewis was pushing back against was the old liberalism of like the 19th century. Uh, and, and you saw that Jefferson's kind of the Amer an American and cheap incarnation of that. But you see that with like uh, uh, David Strauss and some of these 19th century uh, Germans who are liberals who are already uh, imposing an anti-supernaturalist read of the New Testament and not literally taking out parts of it but but deeming what is you know historical and what's not and it was always the miracles that that were like oh that didn't really happen and i think boltman in many ways pushed against the old liberalism because it became just morality uh but boltman still inherited the same anti-supernaturalist outlook from liberty he, he still maintained that in his own work and uh with demythologization it was for him, it wasn't like uh, moralistic. It was existential, uh, finding the purpose for our lives be through the Christ event. But circling back, it goes back to the Christ event really uh, is, if it's not tied to something concrete and something that happened, as C.S. Lewis, I think, would contend, um, then there is no existential meaning to take from that. And that's Boltman's issue, right? Right. Uh, I digress a little bit, but but I do think, I mean, Boltman, I think is a, we'll have to do an episode one day on him, maybe bring on David Congdon or something to talk about Boltman. But but yeah, um, but yeah, he's a contemporary of Lewis in many ways, but, oh, yes. but, but has a very different remedy for something than the same thing that Lewis had issues with. But I think Lewis's remedy for me, I think ultimately works in the end uh, as a, as a creedal Christian. Uh, so I digress. But um, before, uh, kind of in our last kind of kind of closing up the conversation, let's um kind of go around and share our favorite, if we can pick one, our favorite work by almost said Boltman by, by C.S. Lewis, <laughs> not Rudolph Boltman. Our favorite work. Uh, why don't we start uh, with you, Doctor Bray? 
it's very hard to choose a favorite. Yeah. Do you um, want it? Do you want us to come back to you? Um, can I have two? Uh, yeah, two for sure. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll go for the novel that hideous strength. Mm. I love it. I read it, uh, reread it regularly. Um, for me, it was very, very um, influential. It helped me to see, if you like, the way the the nature of evil in society mm. and all the different manifestations of it and fighting it, how to fight against it. Um, so I, I love that novel. It's not that I don't like the others in it, but uh, it sure. was it's the one that particularly spoke to me. Um, and I also um, very much like the essay I'm going to go for is Theology Poetry. Um, obviously, the answer is no, but it's more complex than that. <laughs> but it, uh, and, the, and the quotation at the end that is very much my... Uh, stuck on office wall etc is that i believe in uh yeah you know i i believe in jesus christ i believe in the resurrection not not because i can uh, see it but because through christianity i can see everything right. else it's like the seeing the sun that rises right you know, when the sun rises you can see everything else you don't see the sun well christianity is what the sun with an o is what enables us to see everything else and make sense of it and i felt very much the way okay lewis got it from chesterton i know he did uh, but he explains it a lot better right. and uh, it's um for me that that is the the thing is that when you've accepted the christian worldview it enables you to make sense of everything and right. what in lewis uh, made sense to me when I first read it. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have a work, Dr. Brett, you, do you have a least favorite? Um, or one you couldn't get into? I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, no, nothing I really couldn't get into. A lot of my friends are absolutely crazy about Till We Have Faces. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not my favorite, shall we say? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I, but it's not. It's not that I dislike it or anything. It's just I don't like it as much as most of the others. Sure. <laughs> James, uh, what about your favorite? So, again, that's that's really hard. I love till we have faces. It's it's a it's a great great book. Um, but it's also because I I as a kid I was always captivated by Greek myth. So I, I found that fascinating um so um till we have faces is great um I'll, i also should say uh dr bray that my wife had that quotation from is theology poetry on her wall in her office at the church where she worked um so it's it's a beautiful one my favorite quotation from lewis is if i find in myself something uh in this or something that this world cannot satisfy um, it follows then that I'm made for another world. Um, and that's from mere Christianity. And that's just, that always gives me chills. Um, I, you know, because of nostalgia, I'd probably say mere Christianity or, or the screw tape letters. Um, but, uh, it gives me the shakes to have to limit it to just one or two, as I'm sure it does with you, Dr. Bray. Um, yeah. but, 
but but yeah mere christianity or or the screw tape letters um i love the space trilogy and that hideous strength is glorious and that's an aspect of of lewis that we didn't talk about that he is a scholar of arthurian legend mm. um and that plays into significantly um the writing of that hideous strength i mean for goodness sakes merlin is in the book right yeah <laughs> um but uh but yeah, I, I think his apologetics works were apologetic works were the ones that really um, um, drew me in to reading Lewis. And then the fiction was just the icing on the cake, in effect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. I'll just say until we have faces, one of the things is I'm not 100 percent convinced that Lewis managed to enter into the first person of a woman. That's a fair that's a fair criticism. A woman. I'm not hundred percent sure that it's a full. She's a fully convincing woman. It was very brave of Lewis to do it. Right. I, I think it was uh, it was a great thing to try. But male authors who write in the first person as a woman, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a fair. It's a fair point. That's a fair point. Right. I'll make sure never to do that. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Um. My favorite one, uh, well, and again, uh, unlike, I mean, both of you have read a lot more C.S. Lewis than I have, uh, like I indicated in the beginning of the of the program, but um, my favorite is, is, I would have to say, is The Four Loves. Um, I just found it such a profound read when I first read it, like three or four years ago. Um, and for our listeners, of course, they may know, uh, we didn't during our theologian series, I think it was our, our third, where we went through our favorite theologian, James, me and the other hosts, we went, we did like our, our third one. Uh, we, that's when James brought up C.S. Lewis is on his top five. And I got into the four loves and I can't, and I apologize if I'm repeating myself because I, I remember talking a little bit about the four loves and sharing a quote from it that the, the, the section of that book is when he talks about friendship a lot. And the distinction between what friendship is like versus what a romantic relationship is like. And it's something that we usually don't give a lot of thought to, right? Uh, and we never really think about our friend. And he even makes that point. It's like lovers are always, this is a quote from it, lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever think, hardly ever about their friendship. Hmm. Um, you know, he says like friends find, e find each other through like, um, you know, a variety of different reasons. Um, and that when, you know, when they find each other, uh, friendship is, it's uninquisitive. Um, he says, quote, you can become a man's friend without knowing or caring whether he's married or single or how he earns his uh, living. Um, you know, it, it's, um, it's just a, a type of relationship that, that just a connection is just made. And uh, I mean, I could relate so much to that when I think about the friends I have in my life. Um, you know, there is no, um, uh, a lot of it is over common interest. I think he does speak a little bit to that, how common interest will bring people together. And, and I think that's actually his kind of his main, he says is kind of the main thrust behind friendship. Um, it's not about uh, status, social capital and appearance. It's really about uh, a connection based on something very meaningful and uh it's in i don't know when i read it it was something i was like i never really gave much thought to about the the friends i have and why i have them but um 
wow, that was very uh, enlightening, I guess, to, to read his, his, um, him writing about that, what, what, you know, what, what was entailed in friendship. And so, yeah, the four loves, uh, that would be my favorite. I don't know if I have a least, uh, favorite, uh, maybe, I don't know. Like I haven't read enough of them to, <laughs> to for Do that. you know Lewis's comment on your first friend and the second friend? Uh, I don't know. Ref no. Refreshment. <laughs> your first friend is the person who's read all the th same things as you've read, seen all the same things as you've seen, done all the same things you've done, and you feel exactly the same about them, and you love them for the same reasons. And your second friend is the person who has also read all the things you've read, seen all the things you've seen and done all the things you've done, but thinks about them completely differently and disagrees with you, uh, with you about absolutely all of them. And I was remembering it even yesterday. I was having a big argument, uh, well, friendly argument with my second friend, Professor John Paul Rose, and <laughs> calling each other second friend for the last 30 years. Nice. <laughs> Of Lewis, and it was Lewis and Owen Barfield, right, right. Um, who had read all the same things, loved all the same things, but just disagreed about them all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I have a second friend. I have lots of first friends, but I have a second friend. Yeah, that's good. Well, and I think, unfortunately, I wonder if social media is making it harder to have second friends because the, the people that could be your second friends are being end up being enemies because social media has a way of us finding each other through common interests. But a lot of our common interests we're so passionate about mm -hmm. that you like if if there is a point of difference, especially when you're not with a living, breathing person in front of you, but it's through a screen, right? It's so easy, and I'm guilty. I would think you know I am. I want you know you know just kind of there's that dehumanization that comes in because they're from afar, and um, you can just write them off as an enemy. Um, but it's so different when you know them. In, in Lewis's time, there was no social media. People knew each other. They had these conversations in real time, even in more real time than we are now, because we're on Zoom. I guess we're not we're technically in person either. So, um, but yeah, it, and I think it would just would have, when I look back, it probably would have been just such an enriching experience to hang out with Lewis or any of the Inklings and just have it in person conversation. Um, and pick their brains about things and all that. So, right. yeah. Well, this has been a, a fabulous, fabulous discussion. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bray, for giving your time for this. Um, That's uh, great. Very enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God bless you and your future work. And you as well, James. Thank you. And for our listeners, we will uh, we will see you when you tune in again, or you'll be listening to us when you tune in again. God bless.